Hello and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from academic discussions happening in our journal to interviews with filmmakers and artists and global perspectives on health and medicine from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and to the humanities because life happens at the intersections. Hello and welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. We're really excited today because I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Oni Blackstock. Dr. Blackstock is Assistant Commissioner for the New York City Health Department's Bureau of HIV, where she oversees the city's response to ending the HIV pandemic. She's also a primary care and HIV doctor as well as a researcher, and her work is focused on the experiences of women and people of color in healthcare. She's also an advocate for LGBTQ plus rights, and during the COVID panic, she's been advising on sexual health to slow the spread of coronavirus disease. I'm excited to have her with us, partly because here in the United States, we're seeing an incredible rise in the outbreak of COVID-19, and our responses are um, somewhat mitigated by problems around the different states and with different laws and the way that leadership has been handled. So I wanted to bring her on today to talk a little bit about what it's like on the ground, particularly in New York. Welcome, Dr. Oni Blackstock. Thanks so much for having me. I wonder if you could start off by giving our listeners a little bit of information about yourself. I'm familiar with your work and deeply impressed by the things that you do, but I know some of our listeners are in the UK and places around the globe, and I just wonder if you could say a few words about what you've done in the past and how that is, um, how that is informing what you do today. So the past several years, I've served as Assistant Commissioner at the New York City Health Department for its Bureau of HIV, where I've led the city's response um, to ending the HIV epidemic. And what that entails is really collecting a lot of HIV surveillance data so that we can track the progress that we're making and supporting both community-based clinical and non-clinical organizations in providing HIV prevention and treatment services. Um, Additionally, you know, as we've dealt with the pandemic, we've supported organizations in pivoting to telehealth. Um, And then we've also developed guidance as well for people living with HIV and also just for the general public around sexual health and COVID-19. And we've also um, switched some of our our really popular programs such as HIV home testing and our condom program to be able to deliver to individuals' homes. So we've we've really tried to innovate um, as this pandemic has evolved. That's really interesting. And I think uh, something else to to mention here, which um, not too long ago I was interviewed and I was asked about what are the historical antecedents for the current crisis. And I had talked about the pandemic flu, the, the 1918 flu, for obvious reasons, because it kind of um, some of the symptoms and also some of the spread is similar. But of course, We've, we're, we've been dealing with epidemics much, much more recently in time, and HIV is one of them. Um, how would you compare both the, the relevance, the kind of the way people are aware of HIV versus how they are aware of COVID and response times? So, so with the HIV epidemic, um, particularly I'll speak to the epidemic here in New York City in the United States, um, I think that people will see a number of parallels um, between um, sort of the federal government's response to HIV and what we've seen with COVID-19. Um, and that has created, I think, a lot of anxiety for folks who have survived 
the AIDS um, epidemic and seeing the government sort of at large's response as um, inadequate or delayed. I think also when we look at you know, what groups are most impacted. Similarly with the HIV epidemic, um, you know, initially it started out as, um, I think primarily people thought it affected white gay men. Actually, we knew that um, people of color, black people in particular were affected early on, but that wasn't in the news. But as the epidemic has evolved, similar to the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen increasing um, racial ethnic inequities in um, who is impacted. So I think just like with any epidemic, we often say that um, epidemics track along um, the margins of society. And so we see that the most vulnerable groups are affected. Right. And, you know, here at Medical Humanities for BMJ, we're very much focused on social justice. This is one of the things that we try to bring to the conversation about intersections between health and humanity. Um, And of course, this is a social justice crisis because, as you point out, whenever you have these kinds of, of afflictions, you had people claiming, oh, I'm upset because I can't go get my hair cut. But that's not thinking about the people who are forced to work through the pandemic because they don't have a choice. Uh, and therefore, they're put at greater risk. They have to make a choice between paying the rent and exposing themselves to disease. Um, so I just wonder, uh, you know, in social justice terms, how how are we how are we to grapple with something like this? I think some people are just realizing that there's disparity for the first time. I agree. I think, um, I often think of it as like the COVID-19 cascade. So in HIV, we have a similar Mm. sort of treatment or engagement cascade. And so with COVID-19, I think about first, you know, exposure, right? How do people decrease, decrease their risk of exposure? We don't have a vaccine yet. So if people are able to work from home that, you know, and able to socially distance, that helps. But we know a lot of our frontline workers here are not able to do that. We have very small um, numbers of people in particular who are Black and um, Latinx who are in jobs that allow them to work from home. The vast majority are not able to do that. So, you know, in terms of preventing exposure, that's very challenging to do. Um, And then when you go to think about, you know, when people are concerned they have been exposed, can they get tested? There's data that shows that um, Black people who were presenting for testing for COVID-19 were less likely to receive a test compared to white patients. Um, And then you think about, you know, what is the risk of severe illness once someone does have COVID-19? And we know that the prevalence of lots of chronic medical conditions such as, you know, chronic lung disease, heart disease, high blood pressure, that those conditions have a greater prevalence among people of color, primarily Black people. And a lot of that has to do with, in part, you know, lack of access to quality care and also the chronic um, sort of stress of racism that has a direct impact on one's health. Yes, um, that reminds me, I I remember with women's health, um, I was doing some work with birth and death rates and infant mortality and maternal mortality and how racism radically skews the numbers so that black women are at much, much greater risk. And I, I, you know, I think there's invisible privilege. I am a, a person who typically scans as white. I'm also a mixture of things, but we just have these privileges. We don't see the racism that's, that's eating away and constantly going on in the background in everyone else's lives. And so um, I do think that some, it seems to me that some of the response to COVID, particularly the angry, I hate to say this, but the angry white response 
is um, people are unhappy that they're suddenly aware of these these disparities. It's almost like we don't want to be forced to acknowledge these disparities. When I think that is maybe the most critical thing that could come out of this. Yes, I agree. I, I do think, you know, for many people, as you mentioned, they are now becoming aware of these striking inequities that exist. But I think, you know, in large part, some of the protests that we've seen in other parts of um, the country have really been, because for the first time, many people, um, you know, don't have the freedom that they've had before to be able to be out in the world sort of uninfringed upon. Whereas when we look at, you know, Black communities, Latino communities, these are heavily policed communities. Um, you know, people are, are used to not having the freedom sort of to move around. So I think I think that is, a, you know, a large part of these, these protests. Um, and, you know, I do hope that it is the start of, you know, a really authentic, candid discussion about what we need to do to address um, the inequities that we're seeing. Absolutely. And I want to talk briefly about Black Lives Matter and the protests that we're seeing, not just in the United States, but around the world, and how and why those protests following coronavirus are important. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the Black Lives Matter um, movement started I think, back in 2014 during the Obama administration. But I think just with um, people seeing the disproportionate impact that this pandemic has had on Black communities in particular. Um, and then, you know, people are losing their jobs. Um, people are losing their health insurance. I think people are sort of realizing um, just the uncertainty, uncertainty and instability we're seeing these large corporations that are, are bailed out while people are, are suffering. Um, and I think people are really waking up yeah. to these realities. Um, and then obviously with the in rapid succession um, killing of Black people, either by the police or people who have been deputized to be sort of community police, um, that has, I think, the coalescence of all of those things has really brought Black Lives Matter back out, um, really to reintroduce it to the public, um, to many people who weren't you know, involved in the movement. And I think people are, are, are really coming together and, and unifying and, and really seeing that it's not just, it's, it's Black Lives Matter, but that, you know, sort of white supremacy culture really affects everyone. It's associated with transphobia, homophobia, sexism. It's linked to a lot of the systems of oppression that really impact almost everybody. Mm -hmm. And Black trans people are at one of the highest risk categories, both health-wise and from police brutality. Am I right in, in assuming that? Yeah. So um, Black transgender women in particular, um, there is data to suggest that life expectancy is early 30s for Black trans women in the United States. And, um, you know, just there's been I don't know if this is anything new, but, you know, black trans women and trans women in particular tend to be, um, you know, victims of, of gender based violence. Um, and so just over the weekend, I, which you may or may not be aware, there was a huge um, Trans Lives Matter gathering here in New York City that was like thousands and thousands of people really showing their support for um, the trans community, particularly black trans women um, who I would say, you know, are, are very marginalized. Are, are not protected. Um, and so I, I'm really hoping that people, you know, people are really focusing really on the health and well-being of black trans women and that we're starting to see um, a change. For those of us who are in the United States, we, we've been living with these, what I would say, horrors for a long time, right? We have no socialized medicine. There's not a safety net. The 1% has most of the resources. We know these things. We grow up with these things. But for people out in the, the rest of the world, some of these features of the United States 
are are suddenly writ large, right? It's really, really obvious. And the incredibly high numbers of infection cases and death tolls in the United States has kind of driven this home through coronavirus. Um, and I read an article not too long ago kind of saying America has seems to have given up on the virus and on trying to contain it. Um, and so I would like to hear, as I know you're deeply invested and involved in trying to help stop these the, the spread and also that your commitment to helping the people of color and also LGBTQ community um, to show people that actually uh, individuals in the United States care very much and are trying really hard to address these issues. And since you're in New York City, I wonder, can you say a bit about how this is attempting to be changed, contained? Um, how can we flip the script and how can we show people that, in fact, the American people, at least, are very much interested in trying to change what's happened here in the United States? Yeah, so the New York City Health Department, um, where I work, has a lot of expertise in, you know, contact tracing, for instance, for infectious diseases. So we are helping to support our public hospital system in a very expansive trace, test and treat um, initiative. Um, and so, you know, we are very much, you know, invested in this work and we are providing a, a lot of support and particularly, um, you know, prioritizing and using an equity lens to do this work um, in the community. So working with community-based organizations that are really on the front lines that can tailor messaging to their specific communities and make it really digestible and accessible. Um, so we are getting feedback from a community advisory board of members from community-based organizations throughout the city um, to help inform how we are really carrying out this um, trace initiative. Um, and we're also prioritizing certain neighborhoods, neighborhoods that we know have been disproportionately impacted, Black and Latino neighborhoods, um, you know, for testing. Um, and so that we are really trying to address a lot of the inequities that we have seen result from this pandemic. Um, you know, we're also in my role as assistant commissioner, I'm doing a number of panels and webinars to talk to people specifically around, for instance, the intersection of COVID-19 and HIV. You know, people living with HIV were experiencing a lot of anxiety, wanting to know, does having HIV put me at increased risk? Um, do I need to do something different? And we're slowly finding out from our data that it looks like um, people living with HIV are not overrepresented among um, cases of COVID-19. So um, they're similarly represented as they are among the cases as they are among the general population. However, there may be differences in outcomes. So we're, we're really sort of digging deeper and trying to understand what's going on. And we are really privileged to have the robust data to be able to communicate that um, to community. And then also how this is impacting um, LGBTQ um, folks. We know that people who are um, queer identifying and, and trans identifying already at the margins in terms of like experiencing economic disparities. Many folks who um, are LGBTQ are in the service industries that um, were most likely either to be frontline or to be laying people off. So people have been, you know, doubly and triply impacted by this pandemic and really being able to share this information and also share resources with community. And I think that's another point to make. Um, we just had a really excellent SCOTUS uh, Supreme Court victory, which now extends the fact that you cannot just fire someone because they're LGBTQ. Um, and on one hand, I celebrate that. On the other hand, it's 2020. You know, um, we, we just seem so backward in so many ways in this country in terms of the rights of minorities and of basically anyone who isn't, um, who doesn't sort of scan as white majority. And so 
you know, how do you feel about that? How do you think, I mean, going forward, the country, some people were saying, oh, I wish things would get back to normal. And I was just speaking to Alice Wong uh, in a previous podcast. Um, and she said, you know, normal wasn't good. <laughs> yes, I agree. As I mentioned, like black communities have had already been used to being over-policed. Um, and so, you know, what's going on now probably isn't a huge change in terms of like the stressors that many were experiencing, not to say it's any easier. But um, yeah, no, many people were fine with the old normal because they weren't really being impacted um, by any of, of the inequities that we have. But um, now I think what's interesting, you know, in addition to people's freedom being infringed upon, you know, many people from various walks of life are being directly impacted by by the pandemic and losing their jobs. And I think people are realizing we have no safety net. And although, you know, when you look to, you know, other countries, um, you know, particularly in Europe, you know, that do have a safety net system. And so that when you lose your job, you're not you're not devastated that you do have um, support from the government. So people are seeing this and really demanding more um, and more more accountability, and as we see, you know, funds going to big businesses as opposed to you know individual families, communities, to small businesses. People are, are you know being understandably um, outraged, and obviously, folks who you know you mentioned Alice Wong, who I know is a big um, um, advocate in the um, space of people with different abilities. Um, you know, I think this is a time where people are really listening to the voices of people who are from the most marginalized communities and we need to continue to elevate and amplify their voices and also to support organizations that are on the front lines of providing services to many of these communities. So at the health department, for instance, um, my bureau supports transgender and gender nonconforming led grassroots organizations. Um, so we support them in building their foundation and helping them to expand services. And this is huge because many of these organizations um, provide employment to people who are trans and gender nonconforming. We know that trans women, many have to resort to um, sex work or exchange sex in order to support themselves. So we're helping to provide employment opportunities and also really culturally responsive services um, for um, people of trans experience. One of the points that we make frequently here at MH is that it's not enough to hear about communities. Um, it's important to hear from them. And so uh, one of the other reasons that I'm really excited that we can talk to you today is that you are living in a community that is deeply impacted. Can you say a few words about your own personal experience in the middle of all of this as someone who works in health and is yourself in many ways on, a, on the front lines? Um, can you say a bit about your own experience to us? Sure. Yeah. So I live in um, in Harlem, which many people who are listening probably have heard of or heard of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and so this is a community that is very much in transition. We've had people living here who lived here for generations who are primarily, um, you know, identify as, as black. And then we have, um, you know, newer members of the community as the neighborhood is being gentrified, who are more affluent um, and white. So we sort of had that dynamic going on. Um, and I have the good fortune to be able to see patients um, at Harlem Hospital, um, where I, I work in the HIV clinic there. So it's really exciting. I get to like bump into my patients on the street. Um, and, and so during the pandemic, I've actually been doing televisits. But all that to say is so many of my patients have lost their jobs. Um, many of them who have not lost their jobs are frontline workers. So they've had to, you know, during the peak of the pandemic, had to continue working. Um, you know, many who already struggled with, you know, taking their, you know, HIV medications are now struggling even more. Um, so this is, this is, I think this has been really challenging. It's 
you know, we've had to be more creative in some ways, you know, doing, you know, I get to talk to my patients actually more often because I need to like check in on them and, you know, remind them and see how they're doing and see if they actually need to come to clinic, um, you know, to be examined. So in some ways I feel almost a more, more intimacy and more closeness with them, but also, you know, I think this, this situation of, um, you know, sheltering in place has made it challenging for people who are already marginalized or having difficulty accessing services. Right. And and then there's families, people who have children, Yeah, which, of course, that makes everything much more complicated as well. Ex- exactly right. With schools closed, um, you know, having to find family members or friends to take care of your children. Um, and here in New York City, we did have for frontline workers, um, the city did set up uh, child care um, for uh, frontline workers, children. So that has been like, I think, a huge support for many. But of course, you know, people are still concerned, obviously, bringing their children out um, in the middle of this. So, um, you know, I think it's been it's been challenging for everyone, I think, particularly people who don't have a lot of resources. Right. Uh, And that's that I think is one of the most upsetting things. And one of the things that seems to shock um, my colleagues around the world when they look back at America is that the U.S. seems to have so many resources, and yet um, the average person often has very few resources. And so there's a real disparity um, in in terms of who has and who who doesn't have in this country, which I think COVID has really um, brought to the fore. And as a result, we're seeing these kinds of responses, which you know, protests are are a useful thing, I think, and it's good to see them because we're finally hearing voices, as you say, that often get ignored. So um, any final words for us before we sign off today? Um, I would just say that, um, you know, to, to listeners to continue to to really amplify um, voices from folks who are marginalized and to support organizations that really sort of advocate for the rights of people who are often marginalized um, in their respective communities. I think this is like a global movement. Um, and we've seen people like in every, almost every single country on the globe be part of it. Um, and this is really a, a time to, I think, harness harness all of this goodwill and desire for change into something different. Like we don't have to go back um, the old normal and that we can make a new normal that is um, much more equitable for for everyone. Right, right. And though many of the protests have centered around George Ferguson, I think uh, the point is to remember that all of these people have names and that all of them should be remembered as leading to this moment of change. If if indeed this is a moment of change, they are all um, martyrs to that cause. And I think unwilling, unwilling martyrs to that cause, but um, should be remembered and lifted up as a result. Exactly. Agreed. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Oni Blackstock. Again, uh, please, listeners, don't forget that we do have transcripts available. You can reach them from our blog, which will contain a summary as well as a link to this podcast. Thank you again for joining us. And as always, for being part of the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Stay in touch by reading the journal or our blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We're also on Twitter at medhams underscore BMJ or find us on Facebook. Facebook.